Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Can you hear me? So glad you're joining us from all over the place, from Brooklyn, from Atwater. We've got folks all over from Chicago. Not much further ado, let me jump in. Um, very excited about our guest today. Uh, we have, uh, in conversation with Meredith, we have today uh, Amber Tamlin. Uh, Amber is an Emmy and Golden Globe nominated actress, writer, director, and the author of six books, including the critically acclaimed bestseller, Era of Ignition, Coming of Age in a Time of Rage and Revolution. She's a contributing writer for the New York Times and a founding member of the Times Up organization. Uh, and so Amber will be here today in conversation with Meredith, who is really the reason why we're gathered. Uh, Meredith is an award-winning author and journalist who is the founding executive editor of Them, a Condé Nast LGBTQ plus digital platform where she is now a contributing editor. She's contributed to other books, including the New York Times bestseller, Not That Bad, edited by Roxane Gay, Nasty Women and Burn It Down, she writes frequently for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Wired, Condé Nast Traveler, and many other publications. Uh, and the occasion for the gathering is Meredith's new memoir, Fairest. Fairest is a memoir about a precocious boy with albinism, a sun child from a rural Philippine village. Yes, we got it in the screen there, beautiful cover, uh, who would grow up to become a woman in America, navigating complex spheres of race, class, sexuality, and her place within the gay community. Um, a lot of beautiful praise coming in for the book already. Um, I'll just share uh, Ocean Wong's words, which I think are particularly uh, lovely. Uh, Ocean Wong calls it a marvel of a story wrought with near archeological precision and deep inquiry into history, hope, joy, and human redemption. An artist statement that offers new ways to think and feel in bodies cast ashore. So with great warmth and excitement, I'm gonna turn it over to Meredith to read a little bit from Ferrest. Thanks for being here. Hi, everybody. Um, it's great to see people's faces. Um, it's wonderful to virtually meet all of you. Um, I look forward to um, answering some of your questions maybe later so that we can interact. Um, and um, so, yeah, so my memoir is Ferris, and um, I am a Filipino person with albinism. And because I have albinism, I'm actually going, my vision isn't that great. So even though I have the book in front of me, I'm actually going to be reading from my iPad so that um, my font is enlarged. I can, I can usually read regular books, but I get nervous when I read. So um, it feels safer for me to, um, to have large font. Um, and then the way that the book is structured, um, it, 
kind of follows my life chronologically from the Philippines to um, being a gay man while I was an undergrad at Harvard to the point of my transition, but interspersed between among those chronological sections are sort of flash forwards to how my actions or, you know, like what I was thinking about, um, you know, like in those particular times, you know, like relatively um, long ago have affected my life, um, you know, like more recently. Um, and this section is a self one of those um, self-contained um, flash forward sections um, that comes right after I talk about, um, I talk about the ways in which I was coming into a consciousness of um, being found attractive as a gay man, um, yet that attractiveness is predicated on me being perceived as white rather than Filipino, which is, you know, which is the actual race that I am. So, um, so that's the background. May 2014, a month after I published my first article about being trans, I woke up at dawn between two naked men on the top floor of a townhouse in Park Slope. I'd followed the rules of straight womanhood for over a decade, and it hadn't made me happy. So I wanted to test my boundaries, push myself to be with people in ways I hadn't before. That was when Barrett and Jason came along, a bisexual couple I met online who were interested in dating a woman. I turned on my side to face Barrett, the one with whom I felt a stronger romantic attachment. Jason felt more like a friend I enjoyed having sex with. Bald and a decade older than me, Barrett had left his own rural upbringing in Alabama to become a modern dancer and interactive artist in New York, which led to a career in as a digital consultant and allowed him to unexpectedly come into wealth. He and Jason didn't know I was trans when we first met but I sent them one of my articles and, as I had hoped, they treated my gender as a non-issue. Barrett opened his eyes and smiled. I could tell they were hazel, but not much else, though I'd examined plenty of close-up eye pictures before and filled in details with my mind, dark rings around his irises, dilated pupils because of the dim dawn light and maybe a little bit, his attraction to me. He tilted his head to indicate that we should leave the room together and I followed him down a set of wooden stairs with steel pipes for rails, part of this couple's industrial aesthetic in a house they designed and renovated themselves. I'll get us some coffee, he whispered, as he proceeded to the kitchen on the ground floor while I stayed on the second, an open area lined with bookshelves, a peacock green velvet couch on one side, and a mid-century dining table on the other. Off that big room was a smaller room they used for guests. I noticed that the door was open, so I went inside. Barrett and Jason also used the room as a walk-in closet. I noticed a shelf of stylish shoes on one side and suits and wooden hangers. On another end of the room was a giant mirror framed in ornate gold leaf, leaning against the wall. I stood in front of it and looked at myself as morning light illuminated my body and recalled how comfortable I'd been, I'd been walking around nude in Barrett's presence. It was a relief to feel safe without clothes on in front of, of someone else after years of asking men to turn lights off for fear they would find something overly masculine about my body, my two slim hips, my muscular shoulders and back from years of lifting weights, a fear that did not go away even when men admired that body for being powerful and athletic. 
Admiring yourself again? Barrett asked as he poked his head into the room, then went in to stand behind me. I'm sure it feels great to be almost 40 and have the breasts of a teenager. I laughed, not just at the joke, but at the openness of our relationship. The past decade, when I decided to be private about my transition, except to those I was closest to, the men I'd been involved with had accepted my history as fact, but had also been all too willing to deny its reality, something never to be discussed again once revealed. Though really, I was more responsible for this than they were, because their reticence was an echo of my own shame, my silence like trying to suffocate my history by refusing to breathe. It was such a relief to exhale. It's funny, Barrett continued, as he stared at my reflection. I know you're trans, but I can't really tell. It's a lot harder to see you're an Asian man when I can't see you as Asian to begin with. To me, you're just a woman with a dancer's body. I nodded. I knew by woman, he meant white woman. I wanted to be pleased, but was surprised at myself that I wasn't. We left the room and had coffee at dining table, but Barry's words kept playing in my head. I don't see you as trans, coupled with, I can't tell you're Asian. The way he looked at me was exactly what I'd honed over many years, this trick of perception. And it puzzled me that I was dissatisfied over having accomplished it, a state of being so many trans women so sacrificed so much to achieve. Maybe I didn't feel the satisfaction because I hadn't sacrificed enough, only had reassignment surgery, hadn't touched my face or gotten implants. The remaining undisclosed for a decade was burden enough, so it wasn't that. It was something about how my gender and race reflected on each other, like a dizzying hall of distorted mirrors. When people looked at me and only saw a white person, I understood that being white wasn't actually better, that I only coveted whiteness because of what I associated it with, wealth, education, and beauty. But for someone like, but for someone like me, whose whiteness was literally skin deep, who did not have any meaningful European ancestry, to be perceived as white could only mean that whiteness is nothing more than an illusion. In an ideal world, I wouldn't need to go through so much effort, make so many sacrifices to gain the privileges of whiteness, and other brown people who are not albino would have just as much access to those privileges if they wanted it. I flinched when Barrett told me he only saw me as a woman, because my experience with race forced me to understand that womanhood wasn't real either. I wanted to be a woman because I wanted other people to perceive my qualities through the lens of that gender. But having molded myself to their expectations, I now understood how much of an illusion gender was too. To become a woman in the world's eyes, I made what felt like a huge sacrifice at the time, reassignment surgery, but in hindsight was really a cosmetic change, not unlike a nose job, a shift in, a body's part, in the body part's aesthetic appearance while keeping its function intact. The only difference was the meaning our society invested in one part versus the other. Had I lived in a world where men were allowed to dress and behave like women without being scorned or punished, I wouldn't have needed to be a woman at all. Over the following months, I grew alienated from Barrett and eventually stopped dating him, not because he did anything terrible, but I just didn't want to see myself through his eyes. I came to understand that what I wanted was to be seen as my complete self, my gender, my race, my history, of being judged because of it. I wanted people close to me to see an albino person who had learned how to look and act white so the world would more readily accept her and understand how that had been a key part of her survival. 
I wanted people to see how that albino person was also transgender and that she transitioned to be able to express her femininity and had surgery so she would be perceived as being like any other woman, her qualities appreciated on those terms. And if she ever hid who she actually was, it was only so that she could be granted entrance into worlds she couldn't otherwise reach, worlds that should rightfully belong to everyone, not just those who happen to uphold the prevailing standards of whiteness and womanhood. Thanks. That's probably the most political or like explicitly political I get in the book. Um, that actually feels very um, apropos and perfect for the moment that we are in, especially yeah. here in the United States. Um, thank you for reading that. Uh, I was struck. Um, I was struck by a few things that you said. Um, most especially the idea of an echo of one's own shame, uh, which I think is something that is universal um, and understood, even if that is an echo of um, lack of understanding uh, or of an awakening, uh, being in the state of awakening, which I think this country is perpetually in, but especially right now, um, in, this, in, in the many ways that it was in 2017 with 2017's Me Too movement and everything that was coming out then about sexual assault, uh, sexual assault and harassment for men and women and non-binary people. Um, and so I want to, you are, I love you, first of all. You're my friend. Yes. <laughs> my neighbor. <laughs> or Marlo loves you. My daughter loves you. You're one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. And I'm lucky to know you. I was lucky to have been introduced to you. Um, several years ago, and you are like a true intersection. When we talk about the word of intersectionality, you are the ultimate intersection. That, that is, to me, what is so powerful about you. Uh, if there's anyone that can get people, any given person, anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what you are, no matter how you identify, your lived experience, your life, your grief, your joy, your sex, your anything. Um, I feel like you are at the intersections of all of those things, um, mm -hmm. which is really powerful. So I wanna talk to you just a little bit first about um, coming into practice with writing this book um, as, as a writer, already a writer uh, who is known, who's done um, so many incredible things for them and uh, you know, uh, many different outlets, but just talking about the craft of this book and mm. creating it and talking about such a personal story, you know, in the book, for those of you who haven't read it yet, but when you do read it, um, there's a lot of also like deeply personal um, story about your relationship with your mother. Um, this is also a love story between uh, men and people who don't understand you, whether it's a sexual relationship or a personal relationship or an emotional relationship or a spiritual relationship. I mean, it's, it's really powerful. So just talk a little bit about um, the creation of that and the uh, stepping into to writing that. Yeah, I think one of the things, there were a couple of steps. I mean, by the time that I started working on the book, um, I, you know, this was in 2017, I had already been writing about trans issues for several years, both um, as an opinion writer and as an editor, um, you know, like in all of these different contexts. Um, and it was really important. Can people hear me, by the way? Um, 
I see, I, I saw um, Amber's screen freeze, so I thought there may be a problem. Um, but, um, and one of the things that I realized as I was doing that was that all, like basically so much of what I was doing was in the service of, of a cisgender public, right? You know, like I was writing, every essay that I wrote was usually tied to a specific news event, right? You know, like relating my personal history in order to explain to people like how trans people experience these things, how trans people experience it when, you know, people only say good things about Caitlyn Jenner because she's beautiful, not because of anything else, which implies that if she weren't beautiful, she wouldn't be as accepted, you know, like whether those types of issues or, you know, or writing investigative pieces about violence against transgender women in order to get a general public to understand um, that, you know, that it is an ongoing and deep crisis in our country. And so I think I had this really strong impetus to write something for me, um, to be able to, and, and, that, and that intuitively that itself was a political act, right? The fact being able to tell my story to myself, explain myself to myself on my own terms. Right which is, uh, you know, like, which is a privilege that white cisgender authors just have, right? Because, because when you write from a place of white cisgender privilege, you don't need to assume that there are people who don't understand your experience or that you don't need to feel like you have to justify your existence to people. Um, and I think that, and, and, one of the things that I notice is that memoirs that have stood the test of time, you know, are like that because they don't, they don't have to reduce or simplify a narrative for an audience that doesn't understand. So I think that was really kind of like the germ of me wanting to write the memoir in this particular way. Um, and one of the things that I found as I was working on it is that um, is that whenever I initially wrote scenes, a lot of the time I would write them in a way that felt to me like I had read it from somewhere, or this is what society is expecting me to say about you know like one particular issue of being trans, and I had to engage in a real process of like probing my memories and probing my experiences in order to come to my own conclusions about what my experiences related to those events are actually like. Um, and a story that I tell that's related to that is like, is I was deeply in love with this child star in the Philippines. Her name was Lea Salonga. And she's now, you know, like a big Broadway star. She was the voice of Milan and Jasmine. Um, but I knew her, you know, like when I was, when I was six years old and she was like a, a child star, um, a child singer um, in the Philippines. And I first wrote the scene um, that, that's sort of like a classic trans discovery scene. It's like you see a girl and you want to be the girl and suddenly you want to be a girl. And, you know, and I wrote that scene and I said to myself, no, that, that actually was not how I felt when I was a kid. Like I was actually fine um, and pretty happy, you know, being a boy. 
But what I very clearly remember saying to myself was, I wouldn't mind being a girl if I had that girl's voice, right? Like that was the specific, right. the specific thing that I felt about Leia Salonga at the time was that, was that yes, I'm a boy, but you know, like if I had her voice, then you know, I would, you know, like I would be totally fine being a girl, which is, which, you know, which is just my specific experience, right? And that is, that is the intersection of those experiences and the universality of it that is so powerful to me. And what's so amazing about this book, um, I'm gonna hold it up here, there it is. Um, Fairest, I mean, what's so, what's so incredible about it is that it just feels it feels like the journey of um, of an extraordinary purpose and meaning without ever intending for it to be that. And you sort of, meaning you had a normal life, like in hmm. this book, you, this book is a love story. Um, I've said that to you many times. Like I was shocked when I read it. I was like, this is, I was really drawn into the love story of it and the aspect of the relationships that you had um, with different men who were, you know, while well, you were finding yourself in the purpose of that, but under this extraordinary guise, because you were also, you were uh, growing and sort of becoming who you were in a way that most people will never understand. One of the, one of the most interesting things I took away from an early conversation that you and I had um, Meredith and I had a conversation uh, that was printed for my book, Era of Ignition, which was the most received, the, the most uh, feedback that I got from that book was about our conversation. Hmm. And I think for most people, the sense that um, you, had, you had an understanding of sexism. You knew hmm. what it had been like to be a man in some situation and to have sort of um, an understanding of what it was like to be a woman, but then also also what it's like to be a woman and to be trans and what it's like to view being trans under a cis lens and all of those things, which is what I talk about when I say the intersection. Um, that was, that's really powerful. So I always tell, I always direct people to your work and certainly your book, but your other writing um, when they're struggling with trying to understand their own uh, privilege any of us and right. the way in which we don't really realize that what we have, um, and even by the way, you're absolutely right. For me as a cis white woman, the, the ability to write era of ignition and to just be angry about the basic things I've been through, but to never have to think about a lens through which I have to write it is right. so real. <laughs> it's so real. Like the anger is about something else that's over here that's happened to me far away, but even the writing um, in and of itself feels free. Like I feel free to say what I want. I have to figure right. out what I have to say. Um, so, I mean, with that, and especially, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the identity of whiteness and specifically your identity with whiteness, which is so different. You've said to me, and it's true, you have lived this way and you've acted this way. And this is who you are that, um, you know, you're a woman of color and you are under the guise of whiteness. And I want you to just talk a little bit about what that has meant for your life in general. Um, but also I think maybe in this particular moment that we're living in with police brutality and um, 
the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I'm just fascinated to know where you, how you feel. What are your thoughts in this particular moment? Yeah, I mean, definitely one of the things, there are a number of, you know, really, really complicated feelings around my specific relationship and my specific proximity to whiteness that I feel, you know, on a daily basis, but also especially now, right? Um, one of those things is um, I feel like, I always feel like I understand both um, sort of like a certain, both white psychology and non-white psychology, but, and in ways that, you know, each of those groups don't understand each other. Right. And yet I also like don't belong to either of those groups fully right. because right. of, you know, the, the legacy of white supremacy in our country, right? So, you know, so during that period of the protests, I found myself actually just really at sea a lot of the time because of the fact that, um, because of the fact that I recognized myself right. um, in certain ways that, you know, white people have behaved and, you know, been held accountable and have, you know, and I was engaged in that sort of in a similar process of, um, of holding myself accountable for the things that I've said and done and thought, et cetera, et cetera. And yet at the same time, I also felt this like really, really deep seated, you know, like sense of just anger and, you know, and um, rage really, because, um, you know, because a lot of white passing people um, I think most white passing people have a familial relationship, ancestral, ancestral relationship to Europe. And I don't have that, right? And, and also I don't, um, you know, like I grew up in the Philippines. I didn't come to the States when I was 15. So my fundamental emotional makeup is still as an indigenous immigrant, a Filipino indigenous immigrant person who immigrated to the States from a really rural part of the US and has come to understand the ways in which colonialism and white supremacy has, you know, emotionally and psychologically ravaged my country, right? Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion around model, you know, like Asian people as model minorities, but Filipinos were, you know, like were called the n-word you know habitually by white americans through at least the 1930s you know there were anti-miscegenation laws that that localities tried to enact against filipino people you know filipino people have been lynched right not obviously you know like our experiences you know can't really compare to the, you know, just like the enormous and deep legacy um, of slavery and its aftermaths. But I think for me, experiencing both of those like reckonings, it was almost like a double reckoning simultaneously. 
um, just left me flat. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was, and also at the same time, you know, because we've moved upstate, we don't actually have a place in New York City um, anymore. And, you know, like there are people around me who are immunosuppressed. Like we, we had to make the difficult decision not to join the protests. I, I went to some socially distanced protests in the Catskills, but my community, especially my communities of color, my queer communities of color, I still located in New York City. So that also, you know, they felt really difficult and distanced. Um, And so, you know, but so like the current moment is just like focalizing what I feel all the time, (laughs) you know, which is that I constantly recognize ways in which I behave like a privileged white person. And also like, am constantly in a state of like, really deep-seated anger whenever I see, you know, whenever I see racism. And both of those things are operating simultaneously for me um, really, really often. (laughs) I think it's really good then that you are married to a brilliant, incredible massage therapist um, who can maybe help process. Yes, yes. Being married to a healer, definitely, yeah, like definitely it does wonders for, um, (laughs) for my mental health. (laughs) Um, I want to, before I sort of open it up to some questions, everybody, if you just want to think about, um, any questions you might have and what I'll do is I will open up the screen to, um, to all of us and, uh, just put your hand up like this and I'll maybe call on you and we'll uh, we'll open up your mic and you can ask a question but I did want to I did want to ask the sort of glaring glaring question of the moment which is um, about you know people who we adore and um, have a lot of love for whether that's in the literary world or the you know creative entertainment worlds in any world really um, choosing this moment to be transphobic, and I'm talking about J.K. Rowling's, um, and just wanting to know your um, your thoughts or feelings on that. But also, I think uh, more more proactively, ways in which we can fight against that when when someone that is so beloved comes out in that way um, and shows themselves. Right. Uh, what is it that each of us can do? Um, maybe even besides, you know, just hashtags and. Uh, you know, what is easy, um, what, what are ways in which we can combat that kind of energy? Yeah, I mean, I think, I definitely think Jen Richards, who is a wonderful actress, I don't know if you know her, um, wrote this response that I, you know, that I really deeply agreed with, which is that it, it really, one of the things that was most angering about it for, you know, for me and a lot of trans people is that it it really exposes um, J.K. Rowling's kind of like deep-seated white feminism that she would choose this moment, you know, like in order to sort of hog the spotlight when, you know, like we're experiencing this really, this really vital, you know, like really the most important um, shift in the ways in which we talk about racism and anti-Blackness not just in this country, but, you know, but in, but worldwide, right? Um, To then, you know, to then come out with all of this transphobic stuff, right? 
Um, and, and I think that that's one of the ways in which the two movements are linked, right? Is the way in which she, she presents herself as the arbiter yeah. of like what is universally female, right? And so I think that it's really important for us to be very clear that the turf ideology is really an offshoot of white supremacist ideology that tries to like define people's, um, you know, define who people are rather than, and determine who people are rather than allowing people to do it for themselves, right? And exerting power over people and often doing it under the guise of, you know, other, under the guise of things that are benign, like protection, like, you know, like, like either the desire for protection or the need for protection, right? And I think that that's, you know, like in conversations that I've been having, that's been an important component of me, you know, of me explaining that. And then the other side of that is, is that is definitely to reach out to trans people for whom, you know, J.K. Rowling is an important figure, you know, because there are people who are experiencing and young people, a lot of young people, young trans people are experiencing deep emotional pain. I saw um, Jenny Boylan, who is an amazing author, and I'm going to be in conversation with her, talk, you know, um, online about having, having young, having like 20 something year old children who are just completely heartbroken, right? Yeah. Um, and I think sort of like coming to terms with somebody who you deeply love, you know, like for a lot of people, it's sort of a moment of realizing that, realizing that you can love an artwork, like a piece of art that somebody has created while at the same time, you know, like really detest what their ideology and what they represent, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you know, I think coming into, going into those types of conversations right now, um, when, if you have a trans person in your life who cares deeply about J.K. Rowling is really important because those feelings are very hard to, are really hard to explain away, right? Um, you know, like, and we experience that with so many people, you know, I'm thankfully, you know, like none of my deeply, deeply beloved people, um, have shown themselves to be, you know, to be completely terrible yet, but I'm sort of, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bracing myself or, or maybe I, you know, maybe I just like self-justify. You know, maybe you oh, chose well. Oh, we'll Kevin see. Spacey, I don't really, I didn't really like him that much anymore. <laughs> oh, who cares about Charlie Rose, you know? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I think that's, those are, that those are such great tools that I think looking to um, some of the, the, the trans people who are, you know, on the front lines of those conversations um, uh, is a really great resource. Um, Raquel Willis, there's just, there's, there's many um, who are yeah, talking Raquel about is, it. Yeah, Raquel is really great. fantastic. There are a number of, you know, there are a number of UK based trans people who are amazing. 
actually, if you know, if you want to say a couple here, just for folks to like look into. Yeah, um, Travis Alabanza, Paris Lees, who's a really, you know, who's one of the leading um, UK, Sean Fay, um, you know, the, there are a lot of people in um, a UK context because, because turf ideology, turf being trans-exclusionary radical feminist for people who are unaware um, is much more, you know, kind of deeply entrenched in a UK context. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, it's also such a, um, I mean, this JK Rowling thing is uh, not to belabor, but is such a, I think also pinpoints the deeper issues we have as well with the idea of feminism and um, Mm. the lack of intersectionality, the lack of really knowing, um, how to be together and to understand each other um, and to love each other as, um, you know, in, in, in the name of, of equality for women or, or for femininity for that matter. Um, and I think she's, you know, a shining example of someone who thinks she's doing the right thing um, in her yeah, mind. Because, yeah, because the only way that you can evolve a belief that everybody who is born with a vagina is like universally the same is for you not to be exposed to a bunch of different types of women, right? You know, for 100%. you as universal, yeah. you know, really assumes that you have no notion of intersectionality and the enormous swath of ways that women are, um, and including an indigenous Filipino context where women, women and third gender people existed side by side in harmony, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's kind of the ultimate privilege, I mean, is to be able to um, disclude uh, who exactly gets to define themselves as women. And you're right. exactly right. And, and um, when we're talking about those equalities, um, and when we're talking about, you know, when we say feminism is about uh, the equality of the sexes, well, we kind of disclude wh- whose sex matters, wh- who, who gets to qualify as a sex or not a sex, or um, everyone who makes their own rules and opinions up about it. And unfortunately, she kind of falls under um, a lot of what we're seeing now with the, I think, the unearthing too in um, the police brutality and uh, the protests that we've been seeing, the anti-racism protests and rallies, is very much that same thing. Is it's kind of this um, this awakening, and we're able we're we're seeing people who are going to fight against it, and people who are going to take a moment and be uncomfortable and sit in the discomfort right. of questioning what they thought was the best that they knew, and um, and having to to maybe mind that and and think differently about the way they're showing up in their own lives, but also in their beliefs. That's hard, and that's hard to do, but it's um, so necessary, which is why I'm I'm all about defunding the police. And on that note. Yes. Yes. (laughs) um, I'd like to open it up. With my police officer (laughs) brother-in-law. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. Uh, I'd like to open it up to you guys. We're here in New York. Amber, there is a raise hand feature. Oh, there um, is? That they can click so you don't have to like. Why are you I so don't much if, I don't know if everybody knows where it is, but just put the instructions option. in the uh, chat for those who want to do that. You guys are, you're so ahead of me. Okay, there's a raise hand feature. Um, it, it, I'm looking for it. 
It's in the chat. If you, the instructions for it are in the chat. If you click participants at the bottom of your window, a little box will open up. And on the oh, right side, you should be able to click a little blue raise hand. And wow, if you, found you should it, be able you to guys. see those, Amber, if you can. Okay, great. Um, let's or see. You can, you can also just ask Agnes to call on people. It's the other. Yes, totally. Agnes, if you want to start, I'm going to look down through this list. Great, totally. Let's start with um, Falling James. Do you have something <gasps> you want to Falling! Say? I'm unmuting you. Or it looks like you have to unmute yourself. I'm trying to, but you're not. Oh, I see the hand. Yeah. I'm unmuting. I'm trying. Nope. Not? Oh, no, you're unmuted. I yep. think you're good. Hello? Hi. Take it away. Oh, we could, we could hear you a minute ago. Are you there, Falling? Not hearing you. I'm in a, I'm in a, um, yes, did you rate one? Oh, it looks like you, let's move on to Wendy. Okay, oh, great. So falling, why don't you, can you type your question in the chat? Yeah, I'm going to move on to Wendy, but let you type your question. We can get to it. Um, Wendy N. All right, you should be unmuted, Wendy. Hello, um, hi, I'm Wendy. I'm joining from Long Beach, California. Um, I wanted to, um, first of all, thank both of you for um, uh, holding this conversation in this difficult time and um, being willing to discuss uh, really challenging um, issues. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, in all the craziness of, of the world currently have um, found a lot of healing in either uh, returning to or rediscovering like um, creative outlets. Um, so uh, I, I was curious, uh, this uh, question for um, both Amber and, and Meredith, if, if you could share a bit about um, in your creative processes, when you, when you come across a creative block, what's something that helps with um, getting you unstuck? Ooh. Do you want to feel that first? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I am a big proponent of not rushing. Um, I know that there are two bodies of mind as far as writing and creativity, and there are those that think you should write every day, even if it's trash. You should do every day, even if it's trash. Um, for me, I think what's, what for me as a writer, it's especially important to sit and listen to what I think and feel um, before doing that. And I find that that's really important. Um, my, my writing mentor, one of my writing mentors, Wanda Coleman, the late great Wanda Coleman from Los Angeles actually. And if you don't know her, she's one of the most extraordinary um, poets. She's no longer with us, but um, she was considered the sort of unofficial poet laureate of Los Angeles, which to me is a smack in her face, but it is what it is. She was extraordinary. And she used to say, um, there's no such thing as writer's block, that that's when the muse is sleeping and you have to let her rest. Um, you have to let them rest. You have to let him rest. And uh, what the rest is, is about sort of absorbing information, absorbing feeling, absorbing um, uh, thought, 
just absorption, becoming a giant sponge in a certain way, and then finding a way to um, express that when you're ready. I know that's such a generalized thing, and it doesn't help in this particular moment of numbness, uh, when we all feel very desensitized and also oversensitized. Um, but what I would say is to keep checking in with the voice inside of you. Um, keep checking in with the voice that knows it wants to say something and knows what it wants to say about and very much stay in touch with that voice. Even if you're not going, even if you're not ready or in the place to write something or do something, but just stay in touch with it. Um, because that voice is the thing that's ultimately going to guide you to the creative work. You have to protect it. And sometimes that protection looks like silence for yourself. Um, it looks like um, allowing yourself the, the intrapersonal uh, quiet to, to be able to um, build up what it is you're trying to express, if that makes sense. All, all of that to say, don't rush it and to not worry this idea of like self-care and, and, um, and practicing self-care and taking care um, includes our work and includes our creativity. Um, and to know that as long as you're staying in touch with the thing that is angry inside of you, the, 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 the story that wants to be told from you, from your perspective, um, as long as you're staying in touch and keeping in touch with that, it, it will come. You just have to trust it. And you have to tell it that you trust it. That's the hard part because each of us wants to rush. Each of us is told every day, tweet this, hashtag this, you know, post this, be in alignment with this, do this. And um, we have to consider with the work uh, to hold all of those things at once, but that that necessarily doesn't mean that we're going to be able to have output. That's me protecting your output. That's all. Meredith? Yeah. And I think even though, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of that body, right? In the sense that I'm kind of a creature of habit, you know, like I'm very conditioned to just like wake up in the morning and write something. I also really enjoy, you know, like being aimless, right? That it isn't, um, you know, that it isn't in periods when I don't, you know, like I don't necessarily feel like I can work seriously on the project that I happen to be working on. Um, I just enjoy, you know, like writing. Writing to me is like doodling a lot of the time, you know, like I, I free write, um, you know, like various things. I, you know, like I just jot down ideas. Um, but, you know, like I have to say that um, that has been really challenging recently, especially recently, especially since um, the protests. And I think um, definitely, you know, like allowing yourself to spend time away from the echo chamber of the internet is really important. So, um, you know, like, so I try to take walks in the woods and, you know, leave my phone. I try to you know, like I try to engage in activities that would at least allow me to be alone with my thoughts for a significant length of time because that, um, because I know that that sort of like a coughing um, is, you know, like it's, it's not an environment to be able to sort of, to be able to sort of um, re-engage creatively, right? Um, 
And of course, I also read. <laughs> That's a really big and important activity. Let's go to Aya next. Hello. Hi. Hi. I really um, identify with what you said about being this kind of person who, uh, I guess, is just like so outside of the box that you are um, constantly finding yourself explaining to cisgender white people why you are the way that you are. Mm -hmm. And it made me um, pull up something that I wrote, a question that I wrote in my journal on Wednesday. And it's like, I don't know that there's a yes or no answer, but I'm really interested, like just because as someone who's clearly struggled with this, what your thoughts are, if it just brings up anything for you. Mm -hmm. And the question is, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, am I centering other people or myself? when I spend days trying to imagine a world where they can understand me. Mm, wow. Um, I, just, I just don't imagine people being able to understand me. Um, and, um, and personally, and I allow, um, and, and I live with that reality, right? Um, I, there's this, really, really amazing um, Martinetian um, poet and author and critic. His name is um, Edouard Lissant, um, G-L-I-S-S-A-N-T. Um, and he wrote in a book that I love called The Poetics of Relation about the idea of opacity um, that actually one of the world's, one of the problems that people often have, and one of the, um, one of the ways in which, um, you know, ideologies like, like um, imperialism emerge is when people don't acknowledge their, like they, that they are in certain ways opaque to each other. Mm -hmm. That this assumption that you can always understand another person is actually an illusion that that you're actually just projecting your understanding of the person and acknowledging that allows you to be able to allows you to be able to to accept multiplicity and appreciate multiplicity um so yeah so i guess like i don't um in terms i have um in earlier periods in my life, I definitely struggled with um, wanting to be like other, you know, wanting to have been born like other people or, you know, like wanting to have been brown um, as I was meant to be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't spend a lot of time um, trying, to, um, trying to get people to um, you know, wondering whether, how to get people to understand me. Because, because um, the process of me trying to understand myself is hard enough. I mean, I think that that's, you know, and that's really, you know, like I, I wrote a whole book <laughs> in part because of that impetus. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to BJ Boogie and unmute you. I see the clapping emoji. 
That's so nice. Thank you. I see the question written if we don't hear. Um... Yes, it looks like it's typed. Um, DJ Louise says, can I ask a silly literary question? I finally finished Proust because of you. You start your memory, memoir with a reunion. He ends with one. Also the Sodom and Gomorrah quote, was Proust at all influential in your writing or merely an inspiration? Um, I definitely, when I initially read, I read Swan's Way in college and I reread it. Um, I reread it shortly after. I reread the entire, you know, all of the seven volumes of um, A la recherche du temps perdu. Unfortunately, not in French, in English, even though um, I've studied French. Um, he's just a little bit too archaic for me. Um, and um, so in a lot of ways, you know, like my writing is definitely um, in certain ways influenced by um, French literature. I spent, I was a comparative literature PhD student who, um, and one of my major languages was French. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, so in a lot of ways, I'm definitely influenced by Proust's relationships to memory, the way that he, um, you know, like the way that he focuses on detail. Um, I am probably at some level influenced by French prose, even though Tagalog prose is also, you know, also consists of a lot of, you know, complex clauses and, you know, sentences that wind around. So it's sort of hard to, I think, my prose is probably affected by, you know, by my knowledge of both of those languages. Um, but yeah, you know, like definitely, and I love that, I love this, um, this idea of, of my book starting out with a reunion and, you know, and Proust ending with one. That's such a wonderful, you know, like literary nugget that I will take with me <laughs> and that I hadn't thought about. <laughs> I think we've got time for maybe two more questions. I see one person has messaged me a, um, a private question, which I will, will share. Um, this person wants to know about Rachel Dolezal um, and sort of talking about the experience of her identification as Black and where you think the lines are, whether that was the ways in which that is. Yeah. And isn't okay. yeah. Um, my feelings about Rachel Dolezal have become, certainly become more complicated um, since I wrote about her, you know, like I think it was in, in summer of 2015. For people who don't know, Rachel Dolezal is, you know, like is a person who is of European descent, who then, um, you know, who then pretended, I mean, I'm, I'm using loaded words here, who then um, presented herself um, as Black, and 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 she was found out, and then she she claims to have a transracial identity that has this sort of like proximity to um, you know to transgender identity. And I think at the time, um, one of the things that I said was you know one of the ways that I talked about it is that trans people um, you know the trans people's identities are um, are, are more involuntary. Than racial identity, but I feel like I I don't feel the same way as I do now. I think the real difference, actually, is the fact that you know is the fact that the two genders, um, the the or the two binary genders, the male and female gender, have a really different relationship with each other. 
compared to, you know, to compared to whiteness and blackness, right? And that I am not, as a person who is not black, in a position to be able to, you know, to be able to make an informed judgment about how black people should understand or treat racial de Lazal's claims of, um, you know, claims of transraciality, right? Um, and I think that's, that's as much as I can, you know, kind of, this as much as I can process right now, I guess. Um, Take maybe one more question. Um, if we don't have one, I'll ask the last question. Please. Um, which is, uh, Meredith, I want to know, your, your life story is so extraordinary and, um, which is saying so much because you're still so young, like there's still so much more to go. It's true. But um, it's it's a beautiful book uh, for anyone that um, hasn't read it. Uh, please, please order it and please, please order from Skylight or your local bookstore, especially if it's an independent bookstore. It is majorly important right now that we support our bookstores. It's, it's very important. Um, but I want to just ask you a little bit, since in the traje trajectories you've had in your life, both up, upward and downward, um, in all of the experiences uh, of your, you know, of your lived experience, um, what in this moment right now gives you hope? I, I always like to think at the end of any conversation um, about hope and the idea of something for us to think about going forward. Um, that utilizes that word, whether it's in action, whether it's in um, uh, emotional grounding, whether it's, you know, in any capacity, hope. What gives you hope um, for the future, for yourself, for others, um, for trans people everywhere? I mean, certainly, certainly one of the things that gives me hope is that I see people every day you know, like challenging themselves to be better, um, you know, to work, you know, towards a more fair and just world. Um, and as difficult as, you know, as what, as the world is that we're experiencing right now, um, I also am really, you know, hopeful around, about the human capacity you know, to be able to, you know, to be able to persevere. Um, and I feel like there are ways in which these times of crisis actually exposes, you know, those, those tendencies, you know, the fact that so many people who are not necessarily in the best financial positions themselves are, you know, like are making a lot of economic sacrifices for other people, the ways in which you know, that people are owning up to, um, to the ways that they've been racist um, and, you know, various other things that they're owning up to. Um, I, you know, like I think all of that makes me, um, makes me really hopeful that, you know, that we can at least get to places where more people are living just mm -hmm. lives, right? 
um, or lives that are more just. And I, you know, like I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily one of those people who, you know, feels like everything is progressing, right? You know, that it's all about, you know, like this movement towards progress. But I do think that, you know, like I do think that there's a degree to which we're experiencing a moment in which we're understanding each other better. Um, and I hope, and I just hope that that moment continues. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful note and sentiment to end on. Um, Agnes. Yes. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you, um, both of you, for being here. Thanks, everyone, for gathering. It's such a treat to have Amber Tamlin here and Meredith Kalusin, um, whose book is called Fairest. Um, we hope you'll take a read. And what a nice thing for all of you to come. It's it's like not always the most delightful thing to be on the screen much longer, but it's nice to gather <laughs> in these virtual spaces for these kinds of um, untanglings and reweaving. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, and we hope you'll see you again soon. Thank you okay. so much. Thank Meredith, I'll see you soon for a porch drink. Yes. Socially distanced. <laughs> Socially distanced, but emotionally entangled. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good Bye, everyone. Buy Meredith's book. Buy it online. Fairest. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.